I've always been amazed by is the ability of kids to turn any name into an insult. Do you know what I'm talking about? Like any name, they're just so creative, like they can take any name and make it some sort of insult. So for me in school, my name uh, is John Brown and uh, I got given the nickname Johnny Brown Pants. So uh, that was, you know, really uplifting and encouraging for me. Uh, And uh, I don't know about you, if you had any, sorry if I brought up any past trauma for you that you're going to have to work through. Uh, But in my secondary school of 1,500 students, I was one of the only practicing Christians. There might have been others, but uh, they were a bit more kind of secretive about it. And uh, my friends used to find it quite intriguing and interesting, as well as a little bit weird, that I was a Christian. Uh, And speaking of kids being creative, they'd always try and find creative ways to uh, kind of bring it up and do different things to sort of challenge me and my beliefs and see if I actually stood by them. I remember some interesting moments uh, where, for example, one time, uh, does anyone remember Tipex? Anyone remember Tipex from back in the day, the whiteout sort of stuff? Uh, I remember looking at my, um, my pencil case and someone had, did I say something funny? Everyone, I just, I don't, do people use Tipex? I haven't seen people use pens for years. All right, Tipex is still a thing. Who owns Tipex? Wow. Okay, fair enough. I'm out here iPad generation, but you guys living in the Stone Age, you enjoy your Tipex. But uh, back when normal people used Tipex, I remember when um, uh, I went back and looked at my pencil case and someone had got some Tipex and written with Tipex, John loves Jesus all over my pencil case. I remember another time where I opened up my backpack and someone had hidden a porn magazine in my backpack. I also remember my, my friends trying to come up with these moral dilemmas to see if, you know, they could trick me out or make me stumble in, in kind of what I believed. And they'd say things like, all right, John, how much would we have to pay you to swear? Like, what, okay, and they'd make that, what if it's that word for a fiver? No, or what if it's that word for a tenner? And they'd come up with all these kind of creative dilemmas for me to work out if I would go back on my faith. So enough about the ancient history of my childhood and the days of Tipex. (laughs) Now some actual ancient history. See, from the very start of Christianity, the church and followers of Jesus have always been part of the outsider and the persecuted. They've always been those who are on the fringes in many ways of society. And last week we read about the church in Antioch. We're going through this whole series, the first Christians, all about the church in Antioch. And the church in Antioch was actually formed by people who were persecuted, who were opposed and attacked because of their beliefs in Jesus. We read a verse last week that said that the church was formed after people fled after the persecution of Stephen. That was Stephen, the first Christian martyr who was stoned to death for his faith. And Stephen was the first of many, not just in his day, but in every uh, era since, to be martyred for their faith in Jesus. Christians have been mocked and mistreated. They've been beaten and beheaded. Roman Emperor Nero used to famously take Christians and cover them in tar and light them on fire to give light and decoration to his dinner parties in his palace. 
Our ancestors were human candles. And despite this persecution, Christianity, against all odds, continued to spread. And as Tertullian, the early church writer, said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The gospel began to spread and spread despite the extreme persecution that many believers experienced. And in 312 AD, when Constantine, Roman Emperor Constantine, decided to convert to Christianity, he was backing a winning horse. He made Christianity the official religion of the empire after its massive expansion. And this had a huge impact on Christians, where Christians went from being the outsiders to the insiders, from being powerless to being powerful. And this was a bit of a mixed bag in the history of the church. The pro was that persecution came to an end. The, the, the kind of, just imagine that, you know, if you went from fearing for your life to then not waking up thinking, you know, like today there's going to be people might run through the door and burn down the building. You know, that's a pretty positive win. The con, however, was that the radical nature of following Jesus began to erode, began to dilute. There was no longer a cost of following Christ. You could just turn up to church and you gained a lot and you lost very little, which might sound quite familiar. So where do we find ourselves now? What do we find ourselves experiencing today? Well, for millions of Christians around the globe, the story of the early church doesn't feel like ancient history. When my dad was a missionary in Morocco... He was arrested and interrogated multiple times for sharing his faith. It was illegal for locals to convert to Christianity. Anyone who did risked losing their jobs, imprisonment, even losing their lives. And so to meet, they would have to do so in secret. And to do things like baptize people, they couldn't just open up the pool in a church building because there were no church buildings. They have to do things like baptize people in bathtubs. We're in remote lakes, away from people. Now, according to Open Doors, around 300 million Christians are currently experiencing a degree of persecution. That can range from losing jobs or imprisonment or being tortured, even killed, if they are found to be Christians. 300 million of our brothers and sisters, who can't just sit like we are here in peace and without fear but facing persecution, often extreme persecution. And it's important that we remember what Hebrews 13.3 says to us, which is this. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. It's important that we don't just kind of get so comfortable that we forget that much of our family around the world can't do what we are now, and that we remember to pray for them and even support them. And if you're interested in how you can just practically do that, then you can check out organizations like Open Doors or CSW. So what about now in the UK? Well, back to history. In 597 AD, Christianity reached the shores of our little old island and began to spread. And after a few twists and turns that you can read up about if you're interested, Christianity officially became the religion of Great Britain. And this has been the case for hundreds of years, that Christianity was our official religion, until around our kind of grandparents' or parents' generation. That has been the case. However, 
Across the last century and now into the present one, large amounts of the British population have left church and left the Christian faith. And that trend continues now. If you read the recent census results, you know that for the first time in Britain's history, less than half the population identify as Christians. However, we know that those who are practicing Christianity is much lower than 50%. And that church attendance between 1980 and 2015 fell from 12% to 5%, and would be even lower now. And as much as there's been a change in attendance, it's the change in attitude that has been perhaps more noticeable. Beliefs that were once mainstream now no longer. Beliefs that were once the norm and mainstream then uh, moved into being a tolerated minority, perhaps, I don't know, 20 years ago. But increasingly, in our present day, they are now becoming an opposed minority. Certain Christian beliefs that everyone 20 years ago pretty much would have held to now are seen as hate speech. And we forget that. We've got so used to the cultural climate we live in. And there's an awareness of what happens to anyone who doesn't fit in line with the cultural rules and beliefs. And it's not just Christians, far from it. There's many examples I could share, but let's look at, for example, the once-beloved J.K. Rowling, the author of Harry Potter. And a few years back, she uh, had the audacity to tweet that um, The Guardian had written an article about uh, people who menstruate. And she suggested that rather than say people who menstruate, perhaps it would be better to say women. For saying such a horrendous thing, she was torn to shreds even by actors, actors whom careers were completely owed to her, turned on her as they publicly rebuked her for her sins. And as Christians, we can look at a story like that and think if a secular, liberal, progressive woman can be treated in such a way, what hope on earth do we have? See, cancel culture is very real. It's not a myth. We see it every day on our screens. And we know that literally saying one wrong thing or doing one wrong thing, you can lose your job, your reputation, things you've built for years overnight. This is a real thing. This isn't an irrational fear that we're kind of trying to whip up. This is the anxiety, even maybe some of the things I've already said, the kind of awkwardness of, I'm not sure we can say that. And Christian doctors and nurses and politicians and teachers and preachers and bakers and business owners have lost their jobs and businesses and reputation for holding beliefs that many of us in this room were told to. And the reality is I wish I could say that we're going to be increasingly experiencing a loving and tolerant climate because we talk about love and tolerance all the time as a society. But the truth is it's almost certainly going to get a lot harder and a lot more challenging. There's a strong chance that our church and many other churches like ours will lose its charity status, that councils and local governments will turn on us. Now, to be clear, this is not like persecution that our brothers and sisters around the globe are facing. I'm not trying to compare the kind of awkward conversations at work to some right now who is facing execution as a result of their faith. So perhaps persecution is not the right word for the UK. Perhaps it's discrimination or opposition. But whatever we call it, it is not comfortable. It's not nice. No one likes being disliked. 
Ultimately, all of us are that same kid who in school wanted to be popular, wanted to make friends, didn't want to stand out. It doesn't change when you become an adult. Now, let me be clear. As things get harder, we don't just have to kind of welcome it or accept it. I used to glamorize persecution. I used to think, come on, God, bring persecution to the UK. That would be amazing. Like, bring it and it would be so good. And now I've got a bit kind of wiser and more aware of what persecution looked like. I, I, I'm, like I'm not exactly like, come on, God, make it harder. In fact, when we look at early examples of Christians, even the church in Antioch, the Christians didn't just stay in Jerusalem to say, hey, well, Stephen got stoned, so I'm next. No, it says they fled to Antioch and they formed a new church there. And there is a time where we do push back, where we, we say, no, we're going to fight this and it's right to fight injustice. However, we do need to recognize that persecution has always been our family way. From the very start, persecution has been the way. And let's not forget that we worship a savior who is executed. The cross around our neck reminds us that we have a story of persecution. 2 Timothy 3.12 says this, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And that verse has always really challenged me. Because what that verse is saying in no uncertain terms is, if you're living for Jesus, there'll be pushback. And so when I'm experiencing moments of my life, extended periods even, where I'm never finding it awkward to be a Christian, or never ruffling any feathers, or never having any opposition, the question comes to me, am I truly living for Christ? Because we're told that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's a question for you today too. Are you experiencing such persecution in any form? Now, we need to expect it, however, we don't need to fear it. In fact, the Bible even says that we are blessed, that it's even a privilege to experience persecution. Jesus, in Matthew 5, verse 11, says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus is saying that when you are treated badly for your faith and for your life in his kingdom, you can rejoice because you have been counted worthy, worthy to join with saints who throughout the ages have been persecuted for Christ. It's an opportunity when you experience that opposition to remember that you join with so many others who have gone before and who do so now. And it's also, as we read in that verse, an opportunity to look forward. See, as we experience opposition and pushback, now it reminds us that we don't live for this world. Jesus says, rejoice for your reward is great in heaven. Jesus doesn't say, hey, rejoice because I'm going to make it stop on earth. No, he never promised. No, actually, he said he promises we will be persecuted. He doesn't promise he'll stop it. But what he does promise is that your reward will be great in heaven. So what do we do in the rise of persecution? What do we do in response to it? If you're thinking, well, that was a nice depressing start to a sermon. (laughs) What do we do in response to all this? Well, to me, it's clear. 
We all chip in and buy a remote island somewhere and just start a Christian colony. Who's in? Does that sound good? Somewhere hot, beaches, it's just chill. We'll have a couple church services, a few margaritas, everything's great. <laughs> no, that sounds a bit more like a cult than anything. And let's not start a Netflix doco on that one because I don't need any heat. <laughs> no, we don't retreat. We don't live in fear. What we do is what Christians have always done. We speak the truth in love. We speak the truth in love. Ephesians 4.14 says this, Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves, and blown here and there by every wind of teaching, and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Sounds a bit like the world we live in. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. Truth in love. Truth. Anyone remember when truth used to exist? Anyone remember those days? It's been a while. We live in what has been described as a post-truth world. There is no set truth. The only truth is what you say to be true. If you believe it to be true, then it's true. There's no kind of sin or moral right or wrong. If you have discovered it to be true, then it's true. It doesn't matter if your belief is illogical. It doesn't matter if your belief completely contradicts science. If you believe it, it's true. And those around you must join you in supporting that truth. Now let's be really clear. Living in a post-truth age is not working for us. Look at society around. Is it really working? In place of truth, what we have found is confusion and anxiety and anger and surreal moments constantly where you read that and you're like, is this made up? Is that a kind of comedy headline or is that actually real life right now I could list so many let's just go from one from the last couple of weeks a moment where in Scotland a law was passed which meant male sex offenders men who had raped women could be put into women's prisons if during their trial they decided to identify as a woman let's speak in no uncertain terms that is absolute madness These are the kinds of things that happen in a society that abandons truth, that disregards God. It's madness. Do not be any doubt. There is truth. There is truth. And his name is Jesus. What did Jesus say? I am the way, the what? The truth and the life. Jesus is the truth. The word become flesh, the sovereign Lord, the judge and ruler of all. If Jesus says it is right, it is right. If Jesus says it is wrong, it is wrong. It doesn't matter what I think. It doesn't matter what you think. It doesn't matter what you read on social media later today or see on TV. It doesn't matter what Lord Scotland pass or the UK passes or anyone else. The word of God is where we find truth. And as we stand for truth, we also need to be aware that the demand on us, 
won't necessarily be to abandon the label of Christian. So in some nations, just being called a Christian, it doesn't matter which kind of type of Christian you are, just saying you're a Christian, that's too much. But in our country, I really don't think this is going to be so much the issue. I think a lot of the challenge will be not to leave the name of Christianity, but to leave specific beliefs. And that won't just come from a pressure from outside, but from within, from other people who call themselves Christians. And this dynamic isn't anything new. This isn't kind of a new thing that you know, hasn't been around before. Now, if you read the New Testament, you'll see countless examples of people who called themselves Christians or even church leaders who have to be called out by Jesus or Paul and different people throughout the New Testament. You can read it for yourself. And see, the challenge for us in the coming years will be not to abandon being Christians, but to just stop being that type of Christian. It's all good for you to believe in Jesus, just that area, you know, that thing you teach, like, we've kind of moved on, guys, come on, like, you know that church down the road, or that denomination, they've managed to work out that, come on, surely you two, you, you and your church can work that out as well, surely. Why don't you just join in with what they've done? But let me just address that quickly, because in recent weeks, the kind of major denominations in our nations have been discussing this. You might have seen it on the TV. And one of the things that's argued is we have to change what we teach to get young people through the doors, to make it more palatable for the UK. Do you know what's really interesting? All of the denominations that are currently growing in the UK, the church movements that are growing, every single one has stuck to biblical teaching, the teaching that has always been there. Every single denomination, every single movement of churches who has compromised and changed and kind of uh, adjusted their teaching based on the cultural pressures, every single one is shrinking without fail. It doesn't work. But in some ways, it's not really about whether it works or not. See, we don't base what we believe or teach on what makes us popular or what will tickle the ears of people in the pews. No, we believe what we believe and teach what we teach because we believe in the Holy God. See, one day you are going to stand before him. One day I am going to stand before him. And you can't say, well, my parents said this. Or my friends would have said this if I'd have done that. No, you will give an account for your life. I will give an account for my life. And as you stand before the way, the truth and the life, he will ask you what you did with the truth that you heard. There is a truth. His name is Jesus. And to be clear, no politician is higher. No celebrity is higher. No law is higher. No bishop or pastor or church or denomination is higher. His word is truth. So speak the truth. But do it in love. We don't go looking for conflict as Christians. We don't go searching for persecution. Like tomorrow, if you turn up to work and you know, one of your colleagues says, hey, would you like a cup of tea? It's not right to say, no, I don't want a cup of tea. But what I do want is for you to repent from your sin and rebellion to a righteous God. <laughs> now, if you do that and your colleagues dislike you, that is not persecution. You're just being an idiot and they don't like you for good reason. 
Let's not get that confused. And what is frustrating, I have friends who are like, it's really hard for me at work because there's someone who's a really open Christian and they treat everyone like rubbish and it's not helpful. Don't be that person. See, the gospel is offensive. You can't share the gospel and not be offensive. However, we don't add our own offense. We don't make it unnecessarily hard for people to come to Jesus by being idiots. You're not being persecuted if you're being rude to someone and they reject you. And it's important that we do think about the way in which we say things. Because if you go on Twitter right now, if you look at the discourse that's happening in society, anger is the currency that is most popular. Being angry, being offended is what's in vogue. And as Christians, we can't be those who are angry and hard and harsh. Now, there are times where we are to have a righteous anger. God is angry at injustice, and it's right that we should feel that too when we see things that are wrong. But the Bible also says, in your anger, do not sin. And as we are angry at injustice and wrong things and craziness in our world, we need to make sure that we respond from a place of love. 1 Corinthians reminds us this. It reminds us that you can have all the right theology. You can know all the right teaching. You can win every argument that you get into about this stuff. And yet, if you have not love, 1 Corinthians say you are what? A resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. You're just a loud noise with no real worth. See, we need to remember that as we get into positions where there's sometimes conflict and tension and opposition that we're not just going up against target or opponents. No, we are going against people and people made in the image of God. People to be loved. And the Bible, the message of Jesus, the life of Jesus, is a message of loving our enemies. And this is a concept that as a society, again, there is no notion for. Absolutely none. We have lost any ability to disagree well. The amount of tribalism in our world right now is insane. But as Christians, we follow a saviour who forgave his enemies, even those who were murdering him. What did Jesus say as he was pinned to that cross? In some of his, his dying breaths, he said what? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. In Romans 12, 14, it says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. And this is hard for us because I, even in my own life, I know there's times where I'm like, oh, I really don't want to bottle this. I really want to stand for truth. I, I really want to say the thing that honors God, but I can kind of, you know, steal myself and kind of get all hard and do it. And then I forget that, no, these aren't people that God wants me to get really angry with, but to show love to, to speak the truth in love. And it's important that we do that. So that when the accusations, the opposition, the names that we might be called come, it's very difficult for such names to stick to us. In 1 Peter 2, uh, 2.12 it says, Live such good lives among the pagans, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. And what it reminds us is that we can't control what people say about us. You can't control where society's going to go. But you can control how you act and live. And live in a way in which any accusation of you being harsh or unloving or unkind will just seem a bit weird and silly. 
And we see this uh, all throughout church history, even from the early times. And one of my favorite things is a story of the Roman emperor Julian. And Julian was writing about the rapid expanse of uh, Christianity in the fourth century. And he was angry. He did not like that Christianity was spreading. And he said this, Atheism, which interestingly is what he called Christianity, has been specially advanced through the loving service rendered to strangers and through their care for the burial of the dead. It is a scandal that there is not a single Jew who is a beggar and that the godless Galileans care not only for their own poor, but for ours as well. While those we are who belong to us look in vain for the help that we should render them. I absolutely love that. Here's this Roman emperor who's so angry at the Christians because they're uh, not just caring for other Christians, but for other people outside of the church. And he's like, here's those people who we're meant to be caring for, yet the Christians are the ones who are helping them, the hated Christians. And I also love how Julian calls the Christians atheists. I don't know if you've ever, as a Christian, been called an atheist. I've never had that insult thrown at me. It's a bit ridiculous. But the truth is, sometimes ridiculous insults will come at us. Someone will call you hateful, bigoted. But as we continue to pour out love, such accusations will be difficult to stick to us. It reminds me of something that uh, happened to me not too long ago. And uh, someone I know who, who isn't a Christian, they've been uh, speaking to someone else in the local area who also isn't a Christian, And this person they were speaking to said how people at New Community here in our church were harsh and judgmental and bigoted. And then my friend asked if they'd ever met anyone from our church or ever been to our church. And they said, no, they never met anyone here, never been here. And then my friend said to them, see, I'm just not sure you've got that right. Look, I know John, who's one of the leaders there, And I know New Community Church, and they do loads of stuff in the local area. So I just can't see how that would be true, that they would be unkind and judgmental like you're accusing. Now, when I heard that story shared with me, at first I was kind of a bit like annoyed and a bit defensive on one hand. I was like, who's saying this about our church? But at the same time, and more more than my annoyance, I was just really happy. I was like, this is amazing. That people can say these things about us, us, yet people who know me and know our church, who aren't even Christians, are saying, no, 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 that makes no sense. You sound silly calling that church hateful. If you knew anything about them, you wouldn't be saying that. And people may say all things about you, but your actions will speak louder than any accusations that can come your way. So speak the truth, but do it in love. Now, you might say the thought of persecution, the thought of all of this stuff, I mean, it's just such a a kind of scary or intimidating thing. I don't know if I could stand up against just sort of casual workplace pressure, let alone being arrested for my faith. Well, whether you're in Morocco or in Mottingham, the truth is the same. If you're going to survive, if you're going to thrive as a follower of Jesus, there's one thing you need to do. And that's find the treasure. And you might be like, what, what do you mean by that? Is this some kind of like weird pirate twist? No, no. You need to find the treasure. treasure. Don't worry, this is out of the Bible, not Pirates of the Caribbean. 
In Matthew 13, 44 to 45, Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Find the treasure. See, Jesus is the treasure. Jesus is the pearl of great price. If you don't find Jesus, then of course you're not going to want to give up your popularity or position or friendships or reputation. Of course not. But when you find Jesus, when you truly know him in your heart, nothing feels too valuable. Nothing feels too costly in pursuit of that treasure. See, when you look to Jesus and you find that treasure and you find, wait, so you, the King of kings, the creator of all things, you're the one who made me and formed me and now you call me to a purpose and a new identity. You're the one who, as we heard in our worship, takes our shame and forgives us. And wait, so if I do it again, you'll forgive me again? And then you give me a home in heaven, an eternal promise, one that can never be taken away. See, when you find that treasure, any sort of kind of earthly cost just seems insignificant in light of all that Jesus gives. How were the early how were the early Christians able to withstand persecution? How are our brothers and sisters around the world right now able to withstand the pressure they face? How will you and your workplace and family face such hostility? from finding Jesus is your treasure. And there's a fascinating moment in John 6 where Jesus is speaking to the crowd and he does a really interesting and very weird sermon. He says, I am the living bread. This is in John 6. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread I will give, that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Surely this is a bit where he explains it all. No, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food. And my blood is true drink. And what happens after Jesus does this little sermon? Well, it goes on to say, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And this experience of the disciples can be the same for us too. 
There can be moments where we hear Jesus share something that we're just like, I don't understand, God, why you said this is that way and why you teach this and why you've allowed that thing to happen. There can be moments where it doesn't make sense and it doesn't feel like Jesus is given the explanation. Like if I'm Jesus in that moment, as everyone's walking off, I'd be like, wait, wait, wait. I wasn't literally saying I'm starting a cannibalistic cult. I know everything I said looks like it's some weird vampire thing going on. But actually, I'm talking about communion and that's next week's message. Just chill for two minutes, please. No, he lets them walk away. I have no idea sometimes where God allows the things he allows. And sometimes he doesn't always make sense. And yet there's a moment where he turns to the disciples and a moment he turns to us and he says, and what about you? And I've had those moments in my life where I think, Jesus, why? And the temptation is to just walk away, to give up or to compromise. And picture that scene as Jesus turns to his disciples. These many followers have left and there's just 12 of them left. He says, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. See, in those moments where perhaps you're experiencing persecution, or perhaps you're reading something in the Bible, and you're like, I just don't know why the Bible teaches that. In the moments where perhaps you go through something that you just think God hasn't explained and you don't understand, there is such a temptation to walk away. And I've been there. And yet in those moments, as I felt those things, as I think, you know what, it would just be nice to fit in with everyone else. It would just be nice to have all of those things that I've sacrificed for Jesus. You know, the things that I've laid down in pursuit of him. I would just enjoy doing that and having that. It would just be easier. In those moments when you're tempted to say, enough is enough, I I turn on Jesus and I follow my own ways. I then come to myself and say, but then what? Really? Like 60, 70 years of getting all those things? And then eternity? Yeah, it might be easier for a few more years. But then what? I'm going to give up all I have in Jesus for that? Now, when you find your treasure in Jesus, when you say, where else can I turn? When you say, I've seen too much, I've, I've experienced too much of him. Then in those moments, we say, I have believed and come to know you. See, the reality is for many of us, life could get harder. For some like me, you know, grew up in a Christian family, stuff like that. I didn't really experience much pushback. For people like Catherine and others in this room, becoming a Christian meant a cost in friendships and in family And the truth is, it probably will get harder for each of us. But as we look to Jesus and remember all that he's done, the treasure that he is to us, it gives us the strength to carry on and to speak the truth in love. And whereas the disciples in that moment didn't know why Jesus was speaking of flesh and blood, we do. And sometimes we do understand the answer to the why questions that at one point we didn't. And we know what Jesus was talking about when he said flesh and blood. Because Jesus, not too long after, went on to the cross. And the perfect, spotless Lamb of God, the one who'd never sinned, who'd never done anything wrong sexually, who'd never been angry or harsh or or sinned in any way, 
That Jesus, the Son of God, went to the cross and he took my sin and yours. And on his shoulder, he bore the weight of our sin and shame. And his body was broken. The one who had formed planets, who had formed mountains, who formed you in your mother's womb, those hands were pierced to a cross. His body was broken. His blood was spilled. The Son of God crucified for us. And now, when we eat his flesh, when we take the bread in communion, and when we drink his blood through the wine of communion, we remember all that he gave for us. We remember that God has made a way. And this evening, this afternoon, we are going to take communion. And this is a moment of celebration. This is a moment of victory. See, we might not be in the majority in this country. We, not may, we may not hold beliefs that everyone agrees with. But we know that we join with the hosts of heaven, with the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the one who spoke all things into being. And we join with him today and celebrate the treasure we found in Jesus. And so we're going to do that now. We're going to take bread, we're going to take juice, and we're going to remember Jesus' sacrifice for us. And now this is a moment for those who have come to know Jesus as their Lord, as their treasure. And so if that's you, do please take the, the juice and the bread. And if you're not in that place yet, if you're someone who's like, you know, I'm, I'm still trying to work out what I believe, well, first of all, it's so great you're here. And this is a moment for you to reflect and decide, you know, kind of where am I at right now? And you might decide that you just want to pause and pray if you believe that God might listen, reflect, maybe ask someone to pray for you. Or you might want to take communion as a symbol of saying, you know what, Jesus, today, I want to give my life to you. And if you make that decision, it will be the best decision you ever make to say, I want to live for you, Jesus. And you can do that right now. You can take that bread, take that wine and say, I want to live for you, King Jesus. And so what we're going to do is, um, I just want to uh, ask everyone, if you're able to, to stand to your feet. And our host team are going to be, uh, we've got four different stations around the room. We've got some uh, individual cups with the juice. We've got some rolls. And what I want to do is, if you are someone who's going to be taking communion, I'd love for you to, in a second, go over to those stations, whichever one's nearest, take a cup, take some bread for yourself, and join with maybe two other people, and what I want you to do is to pray together. Thank Jesus again for all he's done. Maybe you want to think of brothers and Christians right now around the world who are unable to do what we're doing. Pray for them that they would know the peace and presence of Jesus. Perhaps you're facing a situation at work right now where you know if, if you speak up or you do a certain thing in trying to honour Jesus, you might lose your job. Or you never get that promotion. Or you might be unpopular. And you say, God, I, I want your help with that. Guys, can you just pray for me? This isn't easy. But that's what we're going to do now. We're going to share this family moment as we take the bread, we take the wine, and we celebrate all that Jesus has done.